Father, we thank you for a new season to be together under your word as men. We thank you, Father, for calling us here this morning, and we pray that you would do what only you can do, and that's to change us. We pray, Father, that you would help us to see Jesus in your word, and that you would give us the refreshment that comes only from him, and that you would empower us, Lord, empower us together to live out the gospel in the places that you'll call us after we leave here. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I want to welcome you this morning to a new fall. For some of you, it's a welcome back. For others, welcome you for the first time. This is our fourth fall doing this. Hard to believe. Uh, Four years ago, we started, and it seems like there are new faces and old faces every semester. And we want you to know just a little bit about this setup uh, in case this is your first time. Um, Number one, uh, we want you to know that it's okay to kind of pop in and out. So if you're someone that's on the road a lot or you work or just, just there's some money nights that the football was too good and, you know, you got in bed too late, right, then, then we, we get that. We do want to make these available to you even if you have to miss a week. And so we have these recorded for you if you want to engage in that, um, even if you have to miss. But we want to make it as easy for you to come in to be with us as possible. And so there's no homework, although I think if you read the Psalms ahead of time, you'll find that that's a helpful Um, a helpful thing as you get here on on Tuesday mornings. Also, we recognize this, that there are, you look around and notice that there are men here of all ages, but what you can't see with your eyes is that there are also men here in all places of your own spiritual journeys. Some of you are perhaps um, just investigating the claims of Christ for the very first time. You know, maybe you know a little bit about who Jesus is, maybe you grew up in church, but but it's never been a situation where you really took him seriously in a way that sort of centered your life on him. And we want you to know that this is a Bible study for you. That there is space here for you to investigate those claims in a safe place as you discuss them. No one's going to judge you for that. Others of you are maybe growing as a Christian for the first time. You're young in the faith, no matter how old you are on the outside. And still others of you are long in the tooth. (laughs) You've been around um, the means of grace. You've been around the scriptures for a long time. And, um, and you're growing and you're excited to be here. And so um, we're very, very pleased that, that you can all be here. And, and, and there's um, something that, that sort of unites us, no matter where we are in our spiritual journey, and that's that we all need Jesus this morning. We, we, we come here every Tuesday morning and we have a common need for God to speak to us through his word and for his spirit to bear down on the questions and doubts and struggles that we face as men. So it doesn't matter where you are, that's going to be true of you no matter what. And so we're glad that you're with us to do that, both as we look at God's word from a large group perspective, and then after about 25, 30 minutes this morning, we'll break up into your tables and you'll get a chance to press down some of the things that you heard and think about how the word applies to you specifically. And they get a chance to pray together. So on Tuesday mornings, we like to keep it pretty simple. We're going to read God's word together. I'm going to try, and Paul's going to try. Say hi, Paul. If you don't know us, Chad Scruggs, Paul Goble, two pastors. We're going to try our best to teach you God's word. Some days will be better than others. I'm going to go ahead and tell you that. Um, and then we want you to, to just talk about it together and to pray together and to see what God does in the midst of those things. So this morning we're starting a series on the Psalms, okay? And by way of introduction, I just want to read you the synopsis that we wrote up for this study. We put this on the website. This is how we summarized 
sort of the study that we're going to be engaged in this semester. The Psalms are the songbook of the Bible. Okay, let me say it again. The Psalms are the songbook of the Bible. What that means is that when people went to church in the Old Testament, you know, when they journeyed up to the temple to be corporately with God, these are the songs that they used. So maybe in some of your churches, you'll, you'll have a songbook or a Trinity hymnal, or some of them will be on a screen, but you'll see some of the same songs happening over and over again. These were the 150 songs that they sung over and over and over again, okay, in corporate worship. Now, they come from all different periods, but that's how they were used. They were the songbook of God's people. They were there to teach men and women how to pray, to teach us how to pray. The Psalms free us to be honest. You're going to see that, that the Psalms free us to be honest, perhaps in ways that make us uncomfortable. We had a leaders meeting before this, and one of the men mentioned, hey, Chad, will you please say that the Psalms are often hard for men to engage in for two reasons. (laughs) Number one, the Psalms are poetry. And sometimes men don't like poetry, maybe, you know, they want, you know, maybe a little bit more exact, precise language, bullet points even. You don't get bullet points. You get things hitting us from images, you know, images and language from different sides to kind of fall awash over us. Second of all, the Psalms will bring you into the presence of God in ways that often make you feel uncomfortable. You probably won't get that this morning, but I want you to hold that in mind because you will get it as we move along this semester. The Psalms form us for the entirety of life under God's care. Join us this semester as we mine these songs for the delight and the discipline. You can see our tagline here. It comes from Psalm 1, spiritual discipline, spiritual delight. For the delight and discipline that these songs offer men who want to love God more fully. So that's what we're going to do. This semester, we're starting in Psalm 1 this morning. Psalm 1 is called the Gateway to the Psalter. Maybe when you were a little bit younger, you made a mixtape. Anyone ever make a mixtape or a playlist these days? You're looking at me like I'm an idiot. You know. You've heard of these things, at least. You've heard of tapes, right? Well, you know how important like the first song that you put on there was, right? Before you gave it to that girl that you liked. You know, the first song was key. Uh, it had editorial like priority for you. And Psalm 1 is the same way. Like these Psalms didn't just sort of fall in a songbook. Psalm 1 is the gateway to the Psalter because it shows us the basic orientation that we are to have as we engage in the other 149 songs. What do we need to know as an assumption, as a presupposition, as we move into the songbook of God's people? That's what Psalm 1 does for us. So let's read Psalm 1 together now and see what it has to say to us this morning as men longing to know God more fully. Psalm 1, you should have a sheet on your table. Those sheets also contain questions that we'll look at afterward. Feel free to write on them and take them home. The gateway to the Psalter. Here's how Psalm 1 begins. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. It yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. 
The wicked are not so, but are like shaft that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is God's word for us. This summer, um, we, we take a vacation every summer, um, well, about four in a row now, to the mountains of North Carolina. Those are kind of, I grew up in uh, Middle Tennessee and Nashville, went to school in East Tennessee. Those mountains are where I learned to ski, where I learned to fish, a lot of different things, and so those feel like home to me. So we took us, uh, our vacation this summer, and I was um, intent on taking my oldest son, who's 10 years old, fly fishing for the first time, okay? I had dreamed about this day since he was born, right? And um, I am not in any way an expert. I've been fishing for about 15, 20 years, not regularly, but I am an expert at knowing when to get a guide. I am an expert at having the humility to have someone tie my flies on for me, without a doubt, okay? And so um, I called two years ago and said, look, I want to take my son fishing. They were like, hold on, he's eight, you know, give us two more years. And so I called back, he's 10, so we took him this year. And um, sure enough, we went on a very challenging day. It was hot, it was the end of the summer, and um, we had a guide with us. And um, in, in that particular river, there was a series of dams where the water released. And when the, that's a big deal, if, you know, if you've been fishing before, that when they're releasing water and how high the water is and how fast it's moving can really change the fishing conditions. We had a guide, though, and the guide knew exactly where to go, exactly where to go. He maneuvered a couple places, said the water's too high here, got us in a boat. It was a float trip. Um, put us in the right place in the stream, tied on the fly to the right depth. We had a nymph on, the right nymph, the right side, size. Put my son in the front of the boat, and he had us fishing, you know, within 10 minutes that we got in the boat. And sure enough, after the first hour, my son had caught seven rainbow tr- rainbows, okay? And he looked at me, and I'd caught one, and he said, Dad, I thought you were good at this. <laughs> and that's what being in the front of the boat can do for you, number one, you know? So when he sat down, I caught up a little bit, you know. Um, but we had a great half day together, caught some more fish, did well. But tell you that story because, and you probably had experiences like this before, the, the guide that we had made all the difference for us. So we passed three other boats, none of whom had a guide, and none of whom throughout the whole day that we saw them had caught any other fish. You know, the guide really gave us a great experience. And my son thinks, number one, he thinks he's good at fishing now, but he loves to fish because he had a great guide. Now, what does that have to do with the Psalms? The Psalms are your God-given guide for worshiping God. They are the guide that God has given you to know what it's like to be in his presence, to love him, and to worship him. These are the songs that God has given us for knowing how to traverse the landscape of his presence, how to understand the ebbs and flows of our own hearts, and how to see things and enjoy things that we would never see and never joy and never experience if we were left to ourselves. Simply put, we have the Psalms because we need a guide to lead us into the presence of God, and that's what these 150 songs help us to do. This morning, I want to give you three big ways that this happens, okay? Three big ways this morning that the Psalms serve as a guide to help us love and worship God. So if you're note takers, here are the big, here's sort of the big three rocks that I want you to see. Number one is this. The Psalms show us that worshiping God 
is a diverse experience. This is really important. I'm going to tell you why this is important to say. The Psalms show us that worshiping God is actually a very diverse experience. Second, I want you to see this morning that worshiping God, the Psalms show us that worshiping God requires discipline. Worshiping God requires discipline on our part. And the last thing I want you to see this morning is that worshiping God, the Psalms teach us that worshiping God brings deep delight to us and fruitfulness. Worshiping God brings deep delight and fruitfulness to our lives. That's by way of overview of the entire Psalter through Psalm 1. So let's look at those points in turn. The first is this. The Psalms show us that worshiping God is a diverse experience. I might say it like this. Worshiping God, loving God, knowing God, life with God, however you want to characterize it, is a many-sided experience. And here's what I mean by that. If you read the Psalms, what you're going to get a sense of is that the authors demonstrate an emotional and spiritual range that includes almost everything you could think of as a man. In the Psalms, you'll find that the authors demonstrate an emotional range and a spiritual range that includes almost anything that you can experience as a man. So you'll read the Psalms and you'll notice that sometimes the authors are really happy. And sometimes they're enthusiastic and sometimes they are filled with faith. But just as often, I'd say this, I'd say more often, <laughs> you're going to read the Psalms and you're going to find here men who are, who are filled with doubt, men who are assailed by guilt, men who wonder out loud in prayer and in worship if God is still for them and why he allowed something to happen that was tragic that he could have prevented. Here are men and women in the Psalms, that evidence signs of depression, of anxiety, of fear, even of apathy. These are real people, and what God is saying to us through these real people and the variety of their real struggles is that you as a man can come to him just as you are. In all the variety of your own spiritual and emotional range in this moment, there is not a single recipe or a single emotional state that you have to get to in order to worship God. He is available to you as you are. I heard a little parable uh, years ago that stayed with me. It struck me. Um, uh, it goes like this. The devil was walking along with one of his cohorts, one of his companions. So imagine that. Devil walking along with one of his cohorts. And they saw a man ahead of them pick up something shiny. And the cohort asked the devil, what did he find? And the devil responded, he found a piece of the truth. And the cohort said, well, doesn't it worry you that he found a piece of the truth? The devil said, no. It's my job to make sure that he makes a religion out of it. That he takes a piece of the truth, a piece of the truth, and makes it the whole truth. Now listen to me, some of you are, are young dads, and some of you are grandfathers who do this. You ever watch little kids trying to play baseball? It is maddening. It really is, because they just can't get the rules. Like, but think about how confusing it must be for them. Like, you can run all the you can run through first base 
and keep going. When you get to second and third base, you have to stop cold. When you get to fourth base, oh, that's called home, right? You can run through it again. Or sometimes you have to tag someone, and other times you're allowed to step on the base. Or if there are less than two outs, and there's a man on first and second, and there's a pot fly in the infield, don't do anything about it. Just let it fall. It's an out anyway. Infield pop-up rule, right? You ever watch kids like trying to get the rules of baseball? They, they never play the game smoothly. Why? Because they learn it in pieces. They get pieces of the truth, and until you get the whole truth of the game, you, you can't play the game well. It is true that as Christians, we often take a piece of the truth and hold it up as the whole truth, and in doing so, we're not, we're not allowing ourselves to play the game well. We make a religion out of pieces of God's truth. So for example, you ever heard someone say, God wants you to be happy? God wants you to be happy. Is that true? Y'all seem like really confused now. <laughs> well, if someone says no and someone says yes, right? I mean, you could say in the end it's true and God knows that our happiness consists of life with him, but there's suffering a lot. It's, it's, it's a piece of the truth, <laughs> that needs to be nuanced. You've heard people say that you have forgiveness in Christ. You have deep forgiveness in Christ. It's true. So you don't have to worry about how you behave. You don't have to worry about what you do because you have forgiveness in him. That's making a religion out of the piece of the truth. Maybe you've heard someone say, if you're struggling in your walk with the Lord, if you're struggling as a Christian or someone who is thinking about Christianity, then you just need to have more faith. Uh, yeah and no. Yeah and no. It's often that we will take something that is true in Scripture and, and our quest for simplicity will reduce the irreducible complexity of life with God in a way that injures us and injures others. Now, why am I telling you that? Because the Psalms prevent us from doing that. The Psalms give us the whole range of life under God's care. They help us to see when we've only got pieces of the truth and when we've neglected other pieces of the truth at the very same time. For 10 years, I worked in campus ministry. Seven of those were at SMU and four of those were at three of those, that's bad math, three of those were at Tennessee. And often I would get students, college students who would come to me who were struggling deeply in their faith. That was a very common, very, very common reality. And if those students grew up in church, often they would be sort of, um, they would come with like this huge burden of anxiety because what they had seen in the church, modeled for them in the church, was that the normal Christian life, the normal Christian life is satisfaction with God. It's satisfaction with God and it's progress in holiness. And it wasn't happening for them. And I would have to say, look, have you ever read the Psalms? <laughs> have you ever read the Psalms? 40% of the Psalms, 60 out of the 150 Psalms, are Psalms of lament. They're Psalms of struggle. And what they tell us is that the normal Christian life is not just one recipe. It is many-sided. It is completely normal to doubt and to struggle. And in our doubts and in our struggle to even come to God to hope for more. The Psalms will lead us into a full experience of God. And they will lead us into the many-sided reality of what it is like to be under his care. That's number one. Second thing I want you to see this morning is this. 
The Psalms show us that worshiping God requires discipline. Worshiping God requires discipline. So I was with the leaders earlier this morning, some of our table leaders, and I asked them what they thought of when they heard the word discipline. And someone said negative. (laughs) Negative. Others said intentional. Others said effort. You get the idea that discipline implies an intentionality, a structure. It's something that what? You have to do. Now, if you're married, you'll notice that that the vows that you said on your wedding day had nothing to do with your emotional state. You ever notice that? That vows are disciplines, they're commitments to act. So no one, you know, you didn't get up there and say, look, I promise to love you and never forsake you as long as I like you. Or as long as I have warm feelings towards you. No, I promise to do that regardless of how I feel. And that is the essence of a discipline. A discipline is doing something, engaging in something, saying yes to something, regardless of how you feel in the moment. Now, I want you to notice in Psalm 1 that the psalmist here um, really sort of gets at two disciplines, I think. But the psalmist engages in something. He says yes to something, and he says no to something. What does he say no to? Look at Psalm 1 here. What does he say no to? Verse 1. It says, He walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So how would you characterize this? What has he said no to? Wickedness, okay. Anyone else? What has he said no to? What do you think? Sinners, okay. Yeah, so he's, he said no to, good. He said no to being in the company with bad people. The, the, the psalmist has said no to, he's avoided bad company. He's distanced himself from people who accept the world's advice, who are a part of the world's ways, and who adopt the world's attitudes. Okay, now hold that for a second, because I know you're thinking, well, that doesn't seem right. <laughs> So you ever heard the saying that you are the average of the five people you hang around most? You ever heard that before? You are the average of the five people you hang around. Was this scary for some of you right now as you're thinking about the five people you hang around most? You're the average of the five people you hang around most? You know, that's like this sort of, I heard, there's a guy named Tim Ferriss. Some of you know who Tim Ferriss is. He uses that all the time. It's getting passed around a lot right now. That's old proverbial wisdom. The Proverbs say that over and over again, that you are, you, you are a man who becomes who you do life with, that the choices that you end up making in life will be affected by the company that you keep, right? And you say, well, aren't we supposed to hang around with all sorts of people like Jesus? The answer is yes. You are supposed to be around and hang around all people, but this is a warning against the belief that you are strong enough to make wicked people your closest confidants and to overcome to overcome their impact on you, right? C.S. Lewis has this great quote. He, he has a little book on the Psalms. It's fantastic. And he says, what makes contact with bad people so difficult is that to handle the situation successfully requires not merely good intentions, that is, not merely that you want to do it for the right reasons, not merely humility and courage. It may call for social and even intellectual talents which God has not given us. It is therefore not self-righteousness, but mere wisdom to avoid it when we can. 
Lewis is saying, look, it's not self-righteousness to not make the wicked your closest confidants. It's wisdom because you're not actually strong enough to overcome their impact on you. You are the average of the five people you hang around most. The company a man keeps defines the choices that a man makes. That's one of the disciplines. There's a flip side of this as well. The psalm says, not only does this blessed man avoid things, but he actively engages in other things. Here it is. He says he's, he meditates on, he, that is to say he chews on, he repeats over and over again the word of God. And all I want you to see here this morning is this paradigm that, that in order to walk in the way of the righteous, which doesn't mean perfection, it just means that you've chosen the way of being under the care of God, trying to love God and all your fallenness. That's all the word righteousness means here. That doing that will always involve in your life saying no to certain things and saying yes to other things, and that's what the spiritual disciplines are. They are the moment that, so you woke up this morning and you made the decision not to sleep in. You said no to more sleep. God bless you. You said no to listening to me. I mean, yes to listening to me, by the way. You said no to not not listening to me, right? So there are disciplines in your life that you say yes to in order to grow. And some of those disciplines may be familiar. We're going to talk about a lot of different disciplines this semester. Some like meditating on God's word, chewing on it. Disciplines that are familiar like getting up on Sunday morning and going to church, (laughs) even if it's a beautiful day, right? Uh, Disciplines like um, praying on a a regular basis. Disciplines like uh, contentment and gratitude. But the Psalms also lead us into disciplines perhaps that you've never thought about before. The discipline... For example, of keeping your life in perspective. So one of the Psalms, the psalmist says, Lord, teach me to number my days. Teach me to know that my days aren't forever. That I have to keep my life in perspective. How do I do that daily as a man? Disciplines like lament. Think about when the last time you cried was. When was the last time you cried? And is that a good thing? If it was a long time, is that really a good thing? The Psalms have us crying quite a bit, right? Disciplines like um, honesty in facing our doubts. When is the last time that in prayer you went to God and told him exactly how you felt? That you didn't try to conjure a certain way of feeling up before him, but you told him that you were struggling with trusting him at all, even trusting that he exists. The Psalms do that. That's not a new problem for modern people. The Psalms do that as well. The discipline of honesty before God as we face our doubts. I love how C.S. Lewis frames the disciplines. He says this. He says, when we carry out our religious duties, we are like people who are digging channels. You get that image? Digging channels or digging ditches or, or, or digging canals. We are people who are sweating and who are working, he says, in a waterless land. In order that when at last the water does come, our hearts will be ready. The spiritual disciplines, your religious duties, you getting up in the morning and coming to Bible study and talking around your tables, you are digging channels in a waterless land so that when God does choose to bring refreshment into your life, your hearts will be deep and ready to receive all of it. That's what the disciplines do for us. The Psalms will guide us into those. Last thing I want you to see this morning is that the Psalms show us that worshiping God does actually bring us deep delight and fruitfulness. Deep delight and fruitfulness. Look at verse 3 with me. 
Verse 3, the psalmist writes, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. It's a vivid image. Here's the impact of poetry. When you read that, does it make you want to be like that man? When you read that, does it make you want to be that man? Do you want to be a man who is thriving, who is alive, who is well-watered, who is nourished, who bears fruit? The answer is absolutely. Now contrast that with the wicked. The wicked are like chaff. What was chaff? It was the debris that came from harvesting that the wind would just carry away, which meant it had no consequence, no impact on the land of the living. The tree versus the chaff. And what the psalmist is saying is, look, your affections should long to be this person. And the psalmist is also saying, look, if you stay with God, if you live with him, if you worship him at some point, even if it's not immediately, God will water you. He will plant you next to the streams of living water and he will bring the deep delight and refreshment that you have expressed to him over and over and over again in his presence. There are two main things that are going on in the Psalms, okay? One is, and it's a juxtaposition, one is the fact that we are encouraged in worship to express to God our deepest desires, to be honest, to come to him with exactly who we are. And the second is that as we do so, we are affirming that God is the one alone who can meet those desires. That he is the one that has the answer for all the questions that we find arising within ourselves. What the Psalms are teaching us is that it may not be at the moment that you cry out. It may not be at the moment that you ask or when you think you need it most, but that God himself will provide. He will plant you by the streams of living water, and he will, in the end, make you happy like the, like the man, the blessed man here of Psalm 1. I want to close this morning by a heavy dose of C.S. Lewis, but, but just by um, an image that he gives us in one of his Narnia books. Okay, So the book is called The Silver Chair. And there's an episode with a young girl there, a character named Jill. And Jill is in the woods, She's found herself in this strange land, and she's dying of thirst. Right? She's in a strange land in the woods, and she's dying of thirst. And finally, she comes across a stream, a place to drink. But instead of rushing forward to run and to drink, she notices that a lion is lying on the other side of the stream, and so she pauses and stops in her tracks. And there she is, paralyzed, trying to decide what to do, and the lion speaks and says to her, if you're thirsty you may come and drink. Now, if you've read the books before, now Jill doesn't know this, what you know, but the the lion is the great king of Narnia, Aslan. He's good. And he's welcoming her to come and drink. And and she looks around wondering who's spoken. And the lion says again, if you are thirsty, young lady, you can come and you can drink. And Jill realizes for the first time that a lion is speaking to her and that kind of freaks her out. And then the lion says again, are you not thirsty? And Jill says, I am dying of thirst. Well, then drink, says the lion. Will you promise, she says, will you promise not to do anything to me if I come? And the lion says, I make no promises. Jill says, do you eat girls? And the lion says, I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. 
Jill says, I dare not come and drink. And the lion looks at her and says, then you will die of thirst. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer, I suppose I must go. I must go and look for a different stream then. To which the lion replies, there is no other stream. That could be the subtitle for the book of Psalms. There is no other stream. There is no other stream. The Psalms will show you the many-sided reality of human longing. And then it will tell you over and over and over again that you can look for another stream, but there is no other stream. And in the New Testament, that journey gets filled out. You see, in Luke 24, after the resurrection, Jesus has this little Bible study with his friends. And in the Bible study, he takes them through the Old Testament, the only Bible they had at the point, and he says, look, I've come to be the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, and guess what else he says? The Psalms. I have come to be the fulfillment of the Psalms. Jesus, he says, I am the fulfillment of all that you've ever read in those songs. So not surprisingly, you'll find that Jesus quotes the Psalms more than any other Old Testament book in the Bible. The Psalms were Jesus' own prayer book. They were the the book of his devotion and and maturity. They They were the book in which he engaged in to understand his own identity and mission. And what Jesus says throughout the New Testament is that in order to know me, you have to get to know the Psalms. But even more, to be guided by the Psalms, you have to know the one who fulfilled them. And so what does it mean for us to say that Jesus fulfilled the Psalms? It means that Jesus Christ is written into every one of the 150 songs. Jesus is the law of Psalm 119. He is the anointed one of Psalm 2. He is the the son of Psalm 110. Jesus is the forsaken one of Psalm 22. He's the good shepherd of Psalm 23. He's the steadfast love of Psalm 33, the fortress of Psalm 46 the rock of Psalm 61, the city of Psalm 132, the unity that we dwell in as brothers together of Psalm 133. He is the song of 149. He is the sanctuary of Psalm 150. And he is the stream of water here in Psalm 1. What Jesus is saying to us is that in all of of your songs, in all of your singing, in all of our songs as God's people, in all the happy ones and the sad ones and the dark ones and the hopeful ones, and the many-sided reality of your soul and experience, all of that is met by the many-sided grace and truth of Jesus. If you are thirsty, come and drink. There is no other stream. Happy is the man. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for this book that leads us to know you and to know ourselves better, perhaps, for sure. And... Um, We pray, God, that as we journey together this morning and as we journey together this semester, that you would lead us into the stream that can satisfy us. You would lead us to Jesus, who would give us what we need. Father, we pray that you would would make us men like this, men who say yes to the right things, who say no to the wrong things, men who depend on you as we dig channels in a waterless land for you to come and fill us. So, Father, we pray for that. We ask for your help. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So take time now at your tables to just think about Psalm 1.